God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commend you to God. This is God's work. He recognized this is God's work that we've established. He's the one to protect it, and he is able to protect it. He has more invested in it than I do. I remember when I was coming out of my foolishness when I was a teenager, and I had been all kinds of stupidity the rest of my life, but I mean, this one, you know, in the teenage years, I was getting into some kind of stupid stuff, dangerous business. And, and um, when I got right with God, after a little while later, I asked my mother, were you ever worried about, were you ever worried about what I was doing? Because she, you know, she didn't know, mothers always know. And, um, and um, she said, no, I really wasn't worried. I knew that God had more invested in you than I did. Well, that's a place of peace, isn't it? She still stayed awake at night waiting for the door to open and close that last time, you know. And she still smelled for things that... But anyway. (laughs) No, I knew God had more invested in you than I did. And that's really what Paul is saying here. I'm commending you to God because this is his work. This is his bride. And friends, you you want to get the groom mad at you, you try messing with the bride. You'll have him all over you. And what Paul is doing, he's commending them to God for safekeeping and he's giving the elders the responsibility as God's under-shepherd. You just be alert, be aware of what's going on. Don't be surprised. Now, don't let it scare you, but don't be surprised if this starts to happen. It's just the way things happen. And that's what he does in verses 1 through 9. This is just what happens here. And then secondly, first off, he commends them to God. And then secondly, he entrusts them to the word of his grace. And why does he trust them to to God's word? Look there in verse... 32, because it is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word of God is able. If for it to be able means it has to have power. There has to be something that drives it, that's alive, that motivates it. It's more than just a font on a page. It, it is able to do something, to accomplish something. And then for the next three verses, 33 through 35, he reminds them of the faithfulness that he showed in the work that he did with them while he was there for three years. And in our passage today, written maybe seven years later, he's going to use an example of someone who has lived it out, and then he's going to commend them to something. Would you like to guess what those two are? We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll start in verse 10, and we're going to look at this passage in three sections. First off, the example of Paul's life and teaching. Secondly, every Christian should expect persecution. And thirdly, the power of God's word. First off, the example of Paul's life and teaching. Look there in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, The Lord rescued me. And you know what? Just like uh, when he was standing on the beach with those Ephesian elders, maybe as much as seven years prior, he still uses himself as the example to be able to say, I've been faithful. I've done what I think I was called to do. And boy, what a great place to be that would be. After all those years, he's still faithful, still serving, still challenging. And he look, look in that passage there. He uses eight proofs, eight evidences of his sincerity. In verse 10, he says, teaching, conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, 
persecutions and sufferings. Of those eight, do you realize that seven of them have nothing to do with what he teaches? Seven of them have to do with how he lives, the example of his life. The first one is in my teaching, but there are a lot of people who can teach it who don't pull it off in their life. Amen? And we, we've known those. Paul's saying, I want to give you seven evidences that I have lived this thing, and you know these things are true. It's not just about his teaching, but it's about his conduct. And not, not just a matter of his conduct, but how he has lived and why he has lived. Look there at the third one, his aim in life. It's not just how he lived, but why. What is the driving motivation in his life? That aim in life is purpose. There have known families who have had a, a family purpose statement. This is the purpose of this family. Why do you exist? What is it that you live for? If, if you live so that you can have enough money at retirement to enjoy the toys you have, have, have accumulated, well, that's one thing. Have, have you lived for that or have you lived so that when you get to the end, you can hear the only one who matters say, well done. And the word aim in life, it's that purpose. It's, it's the same word that... Barnabas used with the Antiochian Christians in Acts 11 when he said, Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What is your purpose? What is your driving purpose in life? If it's to make money today, if it's not to kill one another today, if it's not, if it's just the base stuff, okay. But friends, can we raise our standards as Christians to say there's something more to live for than just existing, than just making it, than just getting by? There's something worth living for. I have a purpose in life. He is intentional and deliberate about his walk. And what's interesting, look at there, look there, the faith, patience, love, steadfastness, persecutions and sufferings. These things are experienced in the face of very real difficulties, both external and internal. He tells us, he tells us over in 2 Corinthians 7, when he went to Macedonia, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Boy, I like that honesty. How many of you ever had fear within? How many of you ever had fighting without when it comes to serving Jesus? It costs you something at work, doesn't it? How many of you, it's, it's ever cost you and your family to, to serve Jesus? And Paul says, these are very real things. I, I like his honesty there. That there are times of persecution that I wonder if he ever got used to being punched in the mouth. Oh yeah, hit me again. I've kind of come to enjoy that. Helps take my mind off that pain elsewhere, you know. I wonder if the, the pain of rejection and abandonment being lied to and being lied about, I, I wonder if everyone, yeah, that's kind of cool. I think I kind of like that. I wonder if it ever stopped hurting. And Paul is honest to say there have been fightings without and fears within. I wonder if you ever thought about quitting. Did you realize that of those people who start in ministry when they're 20 years old, by the time they reach 50, 85% of them have quit. Of those who start when they're 20, by the time they reach retirement age, only 5% retire out of ministry. 95% of them look at it and say, eh, I've had it with this noise. And you know what's amazing about Paul? He got there through all the persecutions and sufferings, everything. He, did. he got there without becoming bitter. We've known some old guys that you go, well, you might ought to should have quit 30 years ago, you know. If all you can do is be irritable and bitter about everything. No. He says, I have exemplified faith and patience, love and steadfastness in the face of all the difficulties. 
all the fightings without and the fears within. And in that passage in 2 Corinthians 7, he tells us how he did it. 2 Corinthians 7, 7, 6 says, but God. Now, if you want to study, you take those two words and punch those into your handy-dandy computer concordance and see what comes up. All the difficulties, but God. All, all, All the stress, but God. All the wondering, but God. All the fightings without and fears within, but God. Ah, those are two good words. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now here's the reality of this. You're not going to receive the comfort of God until you're downcast. And so many of us have orchestrated our lives so that we don't ever have to get downcast. You know, we have everything we need and we don't ever have stress. We're never going to experience this aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is our comforter until we allow the difficulties of life to land on us every now and then. He comforts the downcast. If, if you're always upbeat and have, never have any problems and make sure that nothing ever goes wrong, you're not going to experience this aspect of the ministry of God. Friends, when we are downcast, is the time that he comes to us with his Holy Spirit and he whispers loudly in our ear and says, listen to me. We're going to make this thing. And how does he do it? He comforted us by the coming of Titus. By the coming of Titus. How many times has God used you people? To be a comfort to me. I have a note on my desk that somebody wrote me saying kind things and they didn't sign it. I don't know who it came from, so it just came from all of you. I shake your hand, you say something nice to me, thank you for the card. I keep that. I keep those emails. Because his comfort comes to us through you, through one another. How many times has his comfort come to me through Donna just not killing me? Not waking, not waking up dead from having been burned in my own bed. <laughs> How many times has his comfort come to me through Kevin? You know, you look at the two of us and you go, eh, those two, they, nah, they're not going to make it. This is a miracle of God that I'm so thankful for. And friends, how many times has his comfort come to us through you? Paul looks at Timothy and says, I've given you my life. I've given you my teaching. Learn from them. First off, we have the example of Paul's life and teaching. Secondly, every Christian should expect persecution. Look what he says there in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We are to expect unfair treatment, persecution, injustice, while the very ones who perpetrate these things just go on and on. They get all the promotions. They get the pay raises. Everything goes well with them. You know, you can go read Asaph over in Psalm 73 talking about that. My feet had almost stumbled when I considered. Life can be difficult for me, but the unrighteous, nothing ever seems to go wrong for them. And Asaph had to struggle, wrestle through this. But Paul is talking about persecuted for the sake of being a Christian. And our reality is we just don't see very much of that in America. We don't hear much of it in America, uh, in the American church because we don't see a lot of it. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the rest of the world. There are some who are going to claim that there are more martyrs for the gospel today than there have ever been in the history of the church. And friends... The reality of being hated because we serve Jesus is something he's told us about from the very beginning. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. He told us from the very beginning, John chapter 15, if the world hates you, it hated me first. 
15.20, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Paul tells them in 1 Thessalonians 3, we kept telling you beforehand, you will suffer affliction. Don't be surprised, 1 Peter 4, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And Philippians 1.29 says to you, it has been granted the privilege of not only being called by his name, but also to suffer for his name's sake. And we don't suffer, experience a whole lot of it in America. It doesn't mean it's not a reality in our day. But I do wonder how much more of it we might experience if we were a little more deliberate about our steadfast purpose and our aim in life with our witness and lifestyle. It's easy to orchestrate life so that there's no persecution when we determine to make sure no one knows we follow Christ. And if you have kept your relationship with Jesus such a secret at home, at work, at hobby, at wherever, that nobody even knows you're a Christian... No wonder you're not experiencing any of this. How many times, even in our culture, have we experienced people who didn't get the promotion? I've known plenty who have lost their jobs when they became Christians, didn't get the raise. But when we live like a Christian, when our life has a purpose, a goal and an aim which is contrary to the flow that's going on around you, it's contrary to the rest of the world you deal with, Paul says you need to expect that there will be persecution. We look at it, well, it's not fair. It's not fair that they get the promotions and I get the shaft. It's not fair. To quote one of my favorite theologians of the faith, Karen Brown, oh, oh, Jesus never said it was fair. He said he's good. Put that on your refrigerator, Karen Brown, you know. All, verse 12. Who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while the evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Don't be surprised and do not be distracted. First off, the example of Paul's life and teaching. Secondly, every Christian should expect persecution. And thirdly, the power of God's word. Look there in verse 14. But as for you, now look. Those four words. Those four words are very great four words. First rule in counseling is you never counsel the one who's not there. You come in, somebody comes in, and they and their spouse aren't getting along, and they start running on about how terrible their spouse is. And we look at them and say, that may be the case. But they're not here right now. But as for you. And we can have a discussion, and somebody says, well, you do the same thing. That may be the case. And we can deal with that another time. We can deal with it right now. But as for you, and what Paul is doing is saying all the distractions that you would like to bring in, I just, I just want to get it back to you. In light of the difficulty, in light of the imposters, the false teachers, the evil people, as for you, <laughs> there's a message that I have for you. Hey, you, focus. Listen to me. I had somebody this past week. Robert. Look me in the eye. Listen to me. You need to hear this. <laughs> and Paul is grabbing us all by the nose hairs and saying, remember what is central here. As for you, what does he have him do? In the face of all the evil people, it's going to happen. Evil will increase just like righteousness will. Deception will continue. False prophets, false teachers, evil people, imposters, they will continue. Don't get distracted. Don't look at where I'm pointing. 
It's easy to get so distracted with everything that's going on around us that we miss the core of what Jesus is calling us to. After the, after the resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus takes Peter out and he asks, he, they're walking along the shore, the shore there. And <clears throat> Jesus asks him the same question three times. He changes the word in there, which is a really cool study. But he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter looks at him and says, well, you know all things. You know that I love you. And it's kind of like, yeah, I know that I know all things, which is why I'm asking you. (laughs) Second time, third time, you'll catch on here, buddy, you know. (laughs) Special. (laughs) And Peter, that third time, it offended him that Jesus asked him that wording that he changed there. And so Peter's looking around. He's trying to get distracted by anything else, bring anything else that he can. And he turns around and sees John standing by, walking behind there, walking along behind him. And Peter looks at Jesus and says, hey, John, what, what about him? Well, what are you going to do with him? And Jesus did the same thing with Peter that Paul is doing with Timothy, that the Holy Spirit does with us, when he says, if it's my will for him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That's none of your business. You work on your business. But as for you, you pay attention to what I've called you to do. Quit knowing everything. Quit telling everybody else how they need to do things because you're going to stand in judgment for you, not them. Just what about you? I want you to be alert. I want you to be aware of the false teachers. Be prepared for them. Guard against them. But do not let them distract you from the simplicity and the centrality of the gospel, which, as we saw earlier in this study, is remember Jesus Christ. That's it. Remember Jesus Christ. Because he will change things. Stay focused on your central aim in life. Verse 14, but as for you, what do we want him to do? Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. There he goes again. I lived this thing for you. I have, I have taught it to you. I have lived it in front of you. Knowing from whom you learned it. Verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Boy, Timothy had the unbelievable advantage of having been raised, verse 15, acquainted with the sacred writings. How many of you came to faith later in life? Adult, you already made all the stupid mistakes. You know, it, it, it changes your whole testimony, you know. I got saved young and I got stupid and then I got right with God. Well, that's one testimony. I never knew Jesus. I was an idiot. And then I got saved and he changed me. That's a whole other testimony. But Timothy, what a blessing to have from childhood been acquainted with the sacred writings. And how many of us have determined my kids are going to know the gospel? They're going to be raised in a household where the, where the gospel is lived, where it's taught, where it's talked about. As well as going to church on Sunday, they're going to hear the gospel at home. And there are those of us who are, have the privilege of having been raised in a, with a godly heritage. Both of my grandpas were pastors and both of them loved Jesus. Differently, but they loved Jesus. You go into the one's house and... When he talked about the book, he wasn't talking about Reader's Digest. And when you went to Grandpa's house, you talked about the book. And he loved it, and he lived it he, as much as he understood. And then you went to the other one, and 
the depth and sincerity and simplicity of his faith. And I asked him one time, when do you think Jesus is coming back? And I got kind of irritated because this old goat, you know, he didn't care. And he said, the older I get, the more I love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That old man knew something. The honor, the privilege, the advantage of having been raised with that. And, and Paul is looking at Timothy saying, you had that. And look at what he had. Acquainted with the sacred writings which were able. There's that power again to make you wise for salvation. What are the sacred writings he's talking about? Was it First Timothy? When Timothy was a child, was he reading First Timothy? Was he reading the red and praying for the power, you know? What, 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 is, what are the sacred writings that Paul is talking about? Do you know what it is? It's what we call the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is able. It is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And we look at it and go, well, the Old Testament doesn't have Jesus. If you, can't, if you read the Old Testament and don't find Jesus, you're reading it wrong. He's in there from the first chapter to the last. Malachi 15, it's still Jesus. Malachi only has four chapters, but 15, it's still him. The whole thing. And even in the Old Testament, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That word salvation, that, that word means something. It means that you're in a state of peril. You used to be in a state of peril. You are now in a condition of safety. And that something happened to transport you from peril to safety. There was a moment of salvation. I was drowning and now I'm not. Why? Because something happened. Something intervened. Someone intervened. And salvation means that we used to live in darkness. But we have been translated into the kingdom of light. It means that we used to live in death, but now we have been translated into life. There's a change that took place, and the change that took place was the faith that has come to us in Christ Jesus, and we find out about that in the Old Testament as much as the New. You realize Jesus in the Old Testament, Jesus is the Passover lamb that is without blemish, perfect in every way. And the sins of the people are laid on the Passover lamb. And that Passover lamb dies for the sake of sins that he never committed. That's Jesus. Jesus is the scapegoat who once a year is brought in. And all the sins of the people are put on the scapegoat. And he's sent out into the desert and takes the, the sins of the people completely away from them. That's Jesus. In the book of Ruth, when the kinsman redeemer comes in and pays the debt for someone he loves that cannot afford to pay that debt themselves, that's Jesus. And friends, Jesus comes to us and says, I want to let you know I've done this for you. I am all of those things for you. I have paid the price. I am offering you forgiveness. I've given you my life, and here's what I want in return. I want your life. I've given you my life. I want your life. I want to be your Lord. I want to be in charge that when I say something, you say, yes, sir. Friends, Timothy had come to that understanding because of his acquaintance with the sacred writings. He was brought to an understanding of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus from the time he was a child. And the reason for this is this. 
This revelation was made known to him because of verse 16. Look at what it says in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's alive, it's living, it's animated. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Friends, there's a benefit. There's a profitability. Look at what it says in verse 15. It's profitable. There's a profitability which comes from knowing God's word. You want to invest in something? Invest in the word. It's profitable. It's beneficial for, what does it say? Teaching. For reproof. That means conviction. How many of you ever read the Bible and you're just minding your own business? You know, you're just marking your box and getting your three chapters in for the day. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, the Bible convicts you of something. It's like, well, who gave you permission to do that? Didn't see that one coming. I'd have sure gone and read something else. No, it's good for conviction. It's good for correction. That means straightening things out. It, it gets things straightened out. You get all tangled up in your brain and get all tangled up in your, your walk with God and with others. And it'll straighten those things out. It's good for training in righteousness, educating toward right character. And friends, the word is beneficial for making the people of God competent workers for God in everything that they do. Because the word, it's truth. His word is truth. And we look at that and we say, well, I learned truth from other sources too. Good. I'm glad you learned truth from Oprah. It ain't original with her. Jesus didn't say, I can point you to the way I've known some of the truth and maybe I can give you a little bit of life. No. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And if there is truth that you have learned from any source, it got its origin in Jesus that somebody else borrowed it. Well, God bless them for that. But point them back to the source of the truth, which is always Jesus. And we believe that the Bible is God's word. It is his expression of his thought about us. What is a word? What, do you, what, what is a word meant for? A word is the means by which a thought is transported from one mind to another one. It is the me, it's the vehicle that gets a thought out of my mind and places it in your mind. That's what a word does. In fact... There are linguists who claim, who argue that it's impossible to even think without the use of words. You know, those feral children like Romulus and Remus who are raised by wolves or without human contact, they don't learn words. Their argument is that those people cannot even think like we do because they don't have words. Try and think something right now without words. You're going to formulate words. I have a word in my mind. Okay, how many of you can know what it is? In the first service, you don't necessarily know if it's the same word or not. So there you go. How many of you know what the word is? You want to take a guess? Good luck. Huh? <laughs> That's a letter. <laughs> I can give you this one word, and immediately your brain will go, oh. Some of you go, Ugh. You ready for the word? Butterscotch. Ah, see, it was the same word. See? Butterscotch. Now, some of you are going, eh, whatever. Some of you are going, ooh. <laughs> Friends, a word is nothing but a vehicle by which thought is transmitted from one mind to another. 
And the Bible is God's word. It is his thought. It is what he thinks about us. And the Bible says that at one point, that word, that word which eternally existed in the presence and in complete unity of God, that word one day became flesh in John 1.14 and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That means that Jesus is the word of God. He is the thought of God. Jesus is what God thinks of you. Jesus is the vehicle by which God communicates himself to us. And friends, the Bible is the living, breathing word of God expressed in Jesus, made clear to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word is living. It is active. It's not just, it's not just hidden. It's not just empty words printed on a page like a newspaper. It's not just the font that you choose. It is living. It's active. It speaks to secret places because it says, Hebrews 4, 12, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is capable of penetrating places that we have no intention of it going. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. My mother had a procedure done the other day, a heart procedure. It went up through her femoral vein. They went into her heart and you watch it on YouTube, you know, and you go, wow, that's pretty cool, but I can... I can see how they did that. The guy who came up with that's a genius. But the Bible is able to, without seeing how they did that, without seeing where it's going, the Bible is able to penetrate and divide between the soul and the spirit, between the joints and the marrow. It is even able to discern between the thoughts and intents of the heart. Not only what you did, but why you did it. The thoughts and intentions of the heart. According to Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the Bible is the means by which faith comes. Faith is outside. It's over there. It's something else. But Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing. It, it, it comes to us by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How many of you need more faith? What you need is more of the word of God. Because faith comes to us by hearing. And as we continue to read the Word, it tells us in Romans 1.16 that the gospel which is in the Word of God is the power of God to salvation to everyone who will believe. And then in John 15.3, he says, You are clean already because of the Word that I have spoken to you. Friends, when you allow the Word to speak to you, when you just allow the Word to open itself up, when you open it and say, God, by your Holy Spirit, speak to me. It's going to penetrate into areas you did not know were there. It's going to offer you faith. It's going to bring power of salvation into your life. And it will cleanse you if you will say yes. Psalm 107.20 says that by it we receive healing and deliverance from destruction. 1 Peter 1.23 tells us that it's not just a temporary thing. It, everything else is going to end with with the, the end of the time. but Boy, that word, the Bible says, is imperishable. It's the living, it's the abiding word of God. And Jesus is that word. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Have you heard the word of God? Have you received his word for you, which is Jesus? If not, you can this morning. The Bible says that his word is able. Able. There's power there. He is able. To make you wise for salvation through faith 
in Christ Jesus. Sean, come on. As we prepare for Lord's Supper this morning, I want to give you just a few minutes. What, 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 what verse out of his word is it that's speaking to you this morning? What, is, what verse out of his word is it that's convicting you? It's what he says he's going to do. He's going to teach. He's going to convict. He's going to straighten things out. He's going to educate, educate us toward right character. What, what is it that's speaking to you this morning? What verse is it that is discerning between the thoughts and intents, the what you did and the why you did it? And are you willing to allow the word to penetrate even to that area? Would you be willing to receive, in accordance with John 15, 3, the cleansing power of his word? As we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table this morning, we observe what's called open communion here. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, we invite you to partake with us. We pass out to everyone and ask that we hold, and then when we all have, to, we partake together. But in preparation for that, are you willing to take just a few minutes to say, God, speak to me by your Holy Spirit. Enliven your word to me this morning. What is it you would like for me to deal with some right now? Let's pray. Father, in any relationship, what a blessing. Source of solid foundation when we just start to talk to one another. And Father, in our relationship with you, thank you that you spoke to us. You spoke first. You initiated this conversation. We'd have never known who to speak to if you had not spoken to us first. And then God to speak in the word of Jesus. Wow, how much you love us. Father, in the face of all the things that go wrong, all the distractions, all the false teaching, all the evil people, could we stop just for a minute, recognize it's going to happen, don't need to be worried about it, I'm not going to be scared, I need to be aware and alert. But even in persecution, we can receive comfort. And God, thank you for the active, living, powerful word that you've given us. Father, change our lives through the power of your word expressed in Jesus. Amen.